0: Welcome to the Delve Into Money podcast. I am your host, Curtis Haney. This is the personal finance podcast where we attempt to demystify money by reviewing books and applying what we learn to our own financial journeys. Thank you so much for stopping by on this episode of the Delve Into Money podcast. I appreciate you listening today. Today is a bonus episode where I hosted a Twitter Spaces. And Twitter Spaces is just an audio, live audio recording, where you can talk to all your Twitter followers. And so I have a group of podcasters on Twitter that I've connected with, that we've decided that we're going to host a weekly Spaces. We're going to be doing it every other Thursday and every other Saturday morning. And so if you're on Twitter, you can go find me at, at Curtis Haney. On this particular spaces, we decided to talk about asset allocations. And you have a lot of different people that have different asset allocations in this episode. And so you have a lot of diverse perspectives. So I'm not going to add any more to this. Let's just jump right into the spaces. It'll start with my introduction and then we go through and kind of introduce ourselves so you'll get to know them a little bit. And then we talk about our asset allocations and try and break the topic down pretty extensively. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. For each of you, how's, how has your week been? How's everything, how's everything going on the home fronts for each of you? Lauren, you can go first
1: um my family added a family member as well but uh mm-hmm. through through marriage so my uncle got married last weekend so that was super nice got to have some family time nine to five this week hasn't been the best and i'm reminded that the family time is much better than the nine to five time so um to that end uh making some realistic moves this week selling a duplex tomorrow to 1031 into a six unit so hopefully more family than nine to five time in my future. (laughs) Very nice. Mm.
0: Sounds like a good time. Um, Alex, Kenny, how about y'all?
2: Kenny raised his hand. I'm gonna let him go
3: first. (laughs) Yeah, pretty good. Um, Nothing really new, just working and I just, I just changed my schedule. Like I've been waking up really early. Um, it's it's Twitter is it's a full time job, <laughs> so I feel like I have two jobs. But other than that, um, everything is fine. Just working and yeah.
0: Kenny, you've gone to another level with your engagement, so I'm sure we'll get to talk about that. <laughs> at this point, <laughs> I don't think us humans can keep up over here. Um, Alex, how about you? Oh,
2: life's a little chaotic at the moment. I actually just got back from a trip back to my hometown where I completed what I'm referring to as my threat tour. Uh, essentially, I have some problematic family members and I'm actually getting married next year. So I actually went traveled 600 miles just to tell them in person, hey, you need to behave at my shower and at my wedding or you're getting kicked out. So uh, that was it on the personal front. Uh on the business front, I'm a commercial credit analyst for a bank. There's five of us that manage a billion dollars. And the one analyst I would think that does more work than me and puts in a lot more effort, she's gone now. And as the number two, I'm taking on all of her work. So I've got uh, about two and a half months of work to do in the next two weeks. So uh, chaotic overall.
0: So Sounds like a good time. And you had told me you were taking some sort of accreditation or something is that's behind you now, right?
2: Yes, I took that about three weeks ago. It was a four hour exam. It was absolutely nuts. Honestly, I was uh, I was getting towards like 20 questions left. And I was like, man, if I hit submit and I fail, do I really want to sit down and take this test again? (laughs) But uh, luckily, I passed. So yes, that's back and behind me. And now I just got to catch up. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's that. Yeah, four hour exams. I don't know if I want to do one of those again. So, well, let's let's get started. Like I said, we're recording, so we will be able to play this back. I'll post it uh, after we get the file all situated here in the coming days. Um, I just want to thank you for for joining us. Uh, we're kind of new to this space's uh, realm. Uh, what what we've done is we put together a group of podcasters that are going to be uh, doing spaces on a regular basis. And so we'll post a schedule and, and be every other Thursday. And then we'll be doing some Saturday's mornings as well for other people that are in the group. But on today's spaces, we wanted to talk about uh, a little bit of podcasting. So Kenny's kind of an, an addition here is just a guest this week. so uh, that'll just be, Alex and Lauren. And, um, and then we'll talk about investment allocation strategies. And then uh, at the end, if we've got any questions, we can talk and take those. So as we move along, let's start with, start with Lauren and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, why you decided to start a podcast.
1: Thanks, Curtis. So my name is Lauren Keen Um A little bit about myself. I am 32 years old. My husband is 29. We are based in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. Um, I sell training as my nine to five job, and I've been doing that for eight years. Um, I have a business finance degree, uh, but I have a passion for personal finance. So I started com, and received a graduate certificate in personal financial planning to learn about personal finance and teach those around me. Um, Specifically, I noticed that my sister, who is 13 years younger than me, was curious about personal finance. So the podcast uh, that I started was focused on teaching her. And it's called, of course, Adulting is Easy, right? Because if we can get a handle on our personal finances, it makes adulting a lot easier. And so it started out with me, me teaching her and then she like went off to college and she's really busy. So now it's it's mostly interview based. So that's how I got started.
0: Very cool. Let's go, Alex, and then Kenny and Kenny will have you answer just why you started your Twitter journey.
2: All righty. So my name is Alex. I am a commercial credit analyst for a medium sized bank. Um, I don't go into my last name and whatnot because I work for a financial institution and I don't want there to be any kind of accusations that what I say in any way construes what my bank does because my bank also has a wealth management division. So I'm a commercial credit analyst with a degree in finance, graduated cum laude, and I started a personal finance podcast because I found people made silly decisions with their money and not out of you know any kind of malice, but just didn't know any better. No one taught them. There's really no high school classes. And even in college, what really frustrated me was when I was going through getting my finance degree while I was in the program, they removed the personal finance class, like not even like as a requirement, but like removed it from the curriculum. You can't even take it. So I got a little frustrated at that. and I discovered, you know, the power of compound interest, investing and how, magical it is to grow to retirement so i decided to start a podcast to enlighten people teach people the way and, you know this is how personal finance works
0: okay kenny
3: yeah uh, my name is kenny um uh, i have a a finance degree uh, a bachelor in finance and i also have a a masters degree in finance and accounting um my nine to five is i can i i do i do both but for now i'm just um an accountant at a um property management company um where i have um about thirty seven properties that i manage um so i started my my journey a little bit about seven months ago um Um, I I just I've always been passionate about just, you know, saving and um, making money, uh, but I didn't find like any other way to do it. So uh, it's funny because I had a a conversation with um, our ex-CFO and he was just trying to tell me, you know, to start, you know, doing a uh, opening like a 401k. And um, he was like, you should try it. I'm like, all right. So I did, and um, after I think like six months, I saw so that you know the money was increasing. I'm like, what is this? So I just got curious, and after that, I opened a Roth IRA, um, started investing on my own, and I was like, oh, you know what? Well, I can start like you know educating people about money and how they can invest, and and that that's pretty much how I started on Twitter, just you know, just to to educate people on. Um, investment and investing smart and making money. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I started on Twitter.
0: Okay. Appreciate that, Kenny. Um, my name is Curtis Haney and um, I have always kind of been a personal finance and personal development nut. Uh, I, I live here in Oklahoma with my wife, uh, Samantha, and we just had a baby boy, Karsten, as of he's a week and two days old now. So we are light on sleep, but uh, heavy on love. So it's been a fun, it's been a fun journey. and uh, so we're still adjusting to that. On the professional side, I am I was an accounting major, and for the last 10 plus years, I've been uh, I, well, I got my MBA and I've been a CFO of some small professional services businesses. Uh, I've been in two different spots and just really enjoy the business aspect, but I've always, you know, had an interest in personal finance and just personally have really um, just been very focused on what I want to do throughout that whole journey and had had the opportunity to coach some people. And through that, I just realized how poorly people were educated. And so it got me thinking, I've always blogged, I've always written on the side. And so I had in my mind that I wanted to, to write a blog, but that journey kept moving year after year down the road. So I've had this dream for a couple of years. And then I realized that back in the day when I was in uh, college and in the first couple of years out of school, I'd actually hosted an online radio show with some friends. It wasn't anything big time, but it was a, it was a fun little thing that we did related to some online communities that we are part of. And so I realized, hey, podcasting is not that far off from that. So let's start a podcast. And so I started that in July and I have been working on that. And then I joined Twitter through that. And so it's been been a fun journey. Uh, And my podcast is called Delving the Money. And it's based off of um, based off of kind of the personal development stuff I do, reading books and then I'm making personal finance applications to that. So anyways, that's enough. That's enough of that. If you're for, feel free to give any of us a follow. I know all of these are great follows and I I enjoy listening to both uh, Lauren and Alex's podcast. Uh, Go check those out as well for the podcasters here. So Kenny will put you on the back burner for one question here, but what was the most surprisingly hard thing about podcasting that you didn't expect? Alex, we'll let you go first. And then Lauren next. Uh,
2: For me, for me, it's close to two things. One, all the different skills you got to learn, especially editing is uh, a crazy one. But uh, I think for me, the biggest thing that I still kind of struggle with is like you're shouting to the void. Like uh, (laughs) in a lot of ways, unless people, uh, respond send you emails respond to you on twitter follow you on twitter or whatever you are recording editing publishing and you really like there's no there's no comment section on apple podcast so you're really just shouting to the void and you're seeing the ticker counter on how many downloads you get but there's really not much interaction there so i, w- I was surprised
1: there That's so funny that you say that, Alex, because I feel that way about spaces. Like, I feel like a lot of times I'm just talking, like, when it's me, because lately I've been doing interviews, and so it's literally just me talking to someone for, like, an hour, which, so I kind of forget we're even recording sometimes. Um, what's What's been hard for me was when I first switched from basically just telling my sister about, you know, personal finance topics to interviewing is I... I immediately went to weekly from there. Like I I kind of posted on Twitter, like, hey, does anybody want to join my podcast? And I got like 25 hits and I really wasn't expecting that. So I started doing like weekly podcasts versus, you know, less than that. And it started to be really feel like too much. It started to feel like like a lot of work. And so I switched back to every other week. And since I switched back to that, it's been like a year, year and a half. That's been it's still like it still feels fun that way rather than just like, work and this thing that I always have to do. So at first I kind of struggled with the weekly consistency and then I've dialed it back to I do two blogs a month and two podcasts. It's really doable with my 9 to 5.
0: Yeah, I can I can feel that Lauren when I I went from not producing anything and I prepped for like 2 months before I launched my podcast and then you have this moment of oh, I've got to release stuff for every week now and you've got to do all the prep and all that it can be rather intimidating. But I definitely feel I definitely feel the editing pain for me. That's been the biggest thing because I'm I can be a perfectionist and no one hears all the faults that are there. But I could sit there and listen over things again and again and just really get into the weeds of of what those faults are. And so it's a fun journey, but it definitely is uh, like you said. It's talking into the void a lot of times. It's uh, it can be a grind, but I enjoy, and you kind of maybe see this if you've listened to my podcast, is I've kind of experimented with some new things and experimenting with a new format here in the next coming weeks. So for me, that keeps it fun uh, and keeps it a good time. So let's let's move on, unless anyone has something to add. Let's move on to asset allocation, the whole reason that we're here uh, asset allocation is one of those things in personal finance it's almost a word salad it's like what is what does that actually mean and so i jumped right in with my questions to let's dig into this topic and then lauren actually made me go back and said wait a second we need to talk about what actually asset allocation is and so we're starting off there for people who aren't familiar with what these terms mean So could someone answer that for me?
2: Well, hopefully by my count, there's what, three of us in here with finance degrees? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So asset allocation, everyone knows what diversification is. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Asset allocation is sort of a quotient of how diversified are you? But not just are you diversified, where is your money? Not just... All my eggs aren't in basket A, but okay, how many eggs are in basket A? How many eggs are in basket B? How many are in basket C? So it's not even just that you're diversified, but okay, where is your money? And is that diversification actually getting you anything, any additional lowering of risk? Or, you know, are you in two mutual funds that are basically exactly the same thing? So that's sort of a. Very high overview.
1: Yeah, I'll add like how I basically the the cautionary tale of not being diversified is Enron. So that was a company that basically imploded in two thousand and two, and all of all of their employees, or a ton of them, had of course they had their jobs at Enron, and then they had all of their retirement savings in Enron stock and. And this is what the leaders were telling these people to do when Enron, you know, did some fraudulent things and, you know, they had a lot of off balance sheet transactions that they just moved assets around and called them sales and they would sell something and then mark all of the revenue in the current year, even if it was like a 10 year deal that may or may not happen. And so anyways, Enron imploded. And so all these people, they lost their job their life savings, their retirement accounts all at one time. So that was really the cautionary tale, I think, for investors to open their eyes and not have everything in one place. You don't want to lose your job and your retirement, you know, all at the same time kind of idea. So you should have your assets in different areas. Now there's this meme going around about how the billionaires are not diversified and whatever, but you know what? Bezos, Elon Musk, they've sold a lot of stock recently, probably because they're trying to diversify away from their companies. It's, It's, it's still the right thing to do.
0: And they, they may not be diversified, but when you've got billions of dollars, even if you're not diversified, you've still got billions left. So yeah, that's, it's kind of a goofy, goofy argument. What let's, let's kind of go to the next kind of expand on that why does that matter to the everyday investor
2: well it matters because you don't want to you don't want to be one of those Enron employees to go back to the other example you don't want to be one of those Enron employees where your entire 401k is in one company and then that one company ends up being you know one of the top 5 biggest American corporate frauds of all time uh, <laughs> really not really not a good place to be but it matters to everybody whether it's one company one mutual fund one there's an asterisk there i'm sure someone will correct me on but you never really want to be in any one thing you want to make sure your money is spread out because you know there's that a one percent chance of a 100 percent loss just isn't worth the risk
0: well kenny what do you got to add
3: yeah i was just i was just gonna say yeah it, it's about risk you know when we invest we have we have goals we just don't invest because we wanna invest for for, for nothing we have goals and some have short term goals and some have um, long term goals you know when you're investing it's it's money that you earned um yeah so you gotta protect those and when you when you investing you have uh, for a higher risk um you have also picked a a, a higher return so the more risk you're taking you you have to worry about the potential for losing your money so you you gotta have to mitigate that risk you know by you guys talk about diversification and spreading your asset amongst um different asset classes and and the three asset classes i mean the the main ones are like you have the cash and you have the stocks and you have to the bonds so as you're also moving in age you have to you know um, spread your risk that way. So the the main reason why you want to do that is because of risks,
1: right? And there's a concept of you can you can de- you can diversify your risk away without decreasing your returns, right? Mathematically, is how like the financial models really look. If you can get the same return but but lower your risk by diversifying, that's what you want to do.
0: Yeah, and and this is. You know, seems like a really complicated idea, but the reality is, is it's is it's not as complicated as it sounds. What are some allocation strategies that are out there, and and maybe talk a little bit, maybe about what your uh, asset allocation strategy looks like. We can start with uh, Kenny and go Alex, and then Lauren.
3: Oh yeah. Um, I mean, if I, if I wanted to start with a, I mean, what I do, um, I mainly invest in index funds. Um, about I'll say like 90 to 95% of like my money is just sitting on in VTSAX or VO or VGT, depending on what I have. Uh, I have like about five to 10% um, spread out between some stocks and, uh, some, um uh, for now I don't have, uh, I don't own, um, a, a house so i can't really say that um that i have a, a, a real estate so i'm just now in equities and that's where i am um but you know and, and to answer this question it just depends on your risk tolerance like you you just have to know yourself and then sometimes i like to say you have to do a sleep test like if whatever you have in your portfolio helps you sleep at night then you find I And mean, if you waking up at night, you can't sleep <laughs> because you bought some stocks that you heard from somebody and then, you know, it's, you gotta change, you know? Um, it's like, you know, from reading books and uh, there are people who do um, um, the, the 110 minus your age. So basically, let's say if you're at 30, um, you take 110, uh, you subtract by by 30, and then you spread it like 80%, like stocks, equities, and um, the, the rest, the 20% bonds. Um, some, you know, have have even increased like to 120. Um, some people also just do the age. You, if you 20, you do 20 bonds and 80 stocks. If you 30, you do 30 uh, bonds and um, 70 um, stocks. So. You know, like, you know, what, what you read from, you know, books and, you know, um, um, but I think, you know, asset location is just a personal thing. You just have to know your risk tolerance. Um, you have to know your, um, time horizon. Um, um, and if you know yourself, you know that, you know, I can stomach this pain. Uh, I have just a, a little story. So back in 2020, when the pandemic hit, I remember, um, I woken up at night. I was just checking my Vanguard account, and I saw that I lost money. I, I mean, I, I panicked, and it was it was it was hurtful. But thank God I didn't I didn't I didn't sell anything, and it was just. But yeah yeah, you just have to know yourself. If you know yourself, and and the best way is just to do it, because if you you can listen to any podcast, to you can read any book. As long as you're not doing it, you're not gonna know your restaurants. You just have to put some skin in the game. Like, right? you just have to be there, experience it by yourself, and then you know your stuff. You know your restaurants, and you're gonna you're gonna be better like that. So yeah.
2: Oh right, I'm next. <laughs> um, I honestly have uh, several different ways that I diversify my stuff. So. I'd say the easiest one to do is the Bogleheads three fund portfolio, where you have your money split between equities, bonds, and then oh, someone's going to shoot me. Uh, I forget what the third one is. I want to say it's international, but I'm, I'm sure someone will beat me in a back alley if I'm wrong about that. But anyway, that's the easy one that I like to recommend. However, I sort of tweak it to myself. So for example, I'm not in bonds whatsoever. I'm in my mid 20s, I think. uh, And especially I mean, we're gonna get to it. But in the environment we're in right now, high inflation, bonds are not a good place to be. And then if you're especially looking at the interest rates on those bonds, that's that two, three percent yield isn't really going to shield you from much, especially with inflation hitting you from the other end. It's it's just not a good place. So I try to lean more towards dividend-paying stocks as a sort of substitute for bonds. So how I do my three-fund portfolio, essentially, and I get a little deeper into it than just uh, a single index fund for each of these, but I do U.S. equities with a special leaning towards dividend equities. Then I have an international allocation, and then I do another one that is a split between uh, REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, and... uh, I just lost it. Uh can't believe I just forgot the name of it.
0: I uh, will for, I will add in I will add in yeah the the three fund is the total stock market international stock market and bond. So
2: sweet it was international. I was I was doubting myself there. Thank you. <laughs> so those are the three that I use and then also whenever I do an S&P 500 fund what I'll do to sort of balance it out because right now and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but right now the S&P 500, I believe, 15% of that weighting is like the top four companies. So to me, that's a lot of concentration. So what I do is I will match an S&P 500 fund with a S&P mid-cap fund, so it kind of a little bit more in a balance. But uh, that's a little bit more in depth and just what I do.
1: I'm not gonna correct you, Alex. I don't know what the weighting is of the SP. I know when tech moves, the S P moves. Um, that that's kind of the extent of my knowledge about it. Um, when I think of you know asset allocation, I am a big fan of index funds for the stock portion of our portfolio. For our real estate part portion of our portfolio we more so pick, right? Because we're buying individual properties. So I feel like that in and of itself kind of balances things out. Um, our goal for our portfolio, me and my husband, percent real estate. And, it's, and then the other half are the, um, for stocks, ownership of my husband's uh, you know engineering firm, the private equity that we have in his firm, and then crypto as well, with our goal of crypto being like 1%, which we're like lower on that right now than we would normally be. Um, so, and like the stocks themselves, which is about 40% of our portfolio right now, we have a lot of VOO and a lot, which is, um. Vanguard S&P 500. And then we have a lot of VTI, which is um, Vanguard. I think those are the right tickers like Vanguard total market. We have some other like we have we have a little bit of international. I think I have some consumer staples. I think we have some healthcare in terms of like sector funds, but predominantly our stocks, which is 40 percent of our portfolio is VTI and VOO. And probably 80, 90 percent of those stocks are in vacation Um, I'm sorry, are in um, vacation, (laughs) vacation funds, retirement funds specifically. So um, we're very heavy into real estate. So we're going to be very heavily weighted in that direction, but not as heavy as a lot of my real estate compadres because they're like 90 percent real estate and we're only 50.
0: Yeah. So so you're saying you are 40% stocks, 60% real estate. Um, 40%
1: forty um, percent stocks, 50% real estate, 10% of our net worth is an, um, ownership in my husband's engineering firm. Oh, that's and right. then there's like yeah. a little tiny, teeny, tiny minuscule amount of crypto. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of different strategies that you can go on. And that's part of the reason I was interested in this is because Lauren does have that portion of real estate in her portfolio. You can, you can obviously, uh, the most common ways are like you, uh, Alex, the Boglehead deal, where you do the, you know, stocks, bonds, and then you have some sort of international. Uh, you can also do it based off different classes of, of assets. Uh, my personal portfolio, I am actually in the, in the process of kind of reallocating things, and. I have uh, currently about fifty percent of my portfolio, fifty to sixty percent of my portfolio in uh, U.S. uh, based like total total stock index funds. But then I have some stuff that's moving the weighting more towards mid cap and small cap. Uh, I don't remember my exact allocations on that, but but you're saying Alex of being so heavily weighted on those top four that. I wanted to have some mid-cap and small-cap to kind of uh, rebalance that a little bit. Then I have 30% international, and I split that evenly between developing markets and emerging markets, 15% REITs, which is really a placeholder until I start getting into real estate. Just continually found reasons to put that off just because I'm a little bit hesitant to add another commitment there even though i know i can offload a number of things and then i have five percent currently allocated to crypto though i've been doing some research and i have some plans to increase that um, pretty substantially Uh, i think upwards of ten percent maybe even more than that we'll see how bold i get in that uh we're we're not finalized on that yet what um do Alex or Kenny, do you guys have or those raised hands with comments or questions?
2: Yes, and my mine's going to be quick, Kenny, so I'm going to go first here. So I looked it up. When you purchase VOO, which is uh, the Vanguard Top 500 or S&P 500, uh, the top four stocks represent 17.9% of the total allocation. And so it's 6% Apple, 5.6% Microsoft, 4% Amazon, and then 2.3 facebook. So uh very highly concentrated.
0: That's good to know and that explains why why, why I like to throw a little bit in there for mid cap and small cap. Kenny what's what's your question?
3: Yeah, I was just I was just going to add that, you know, I didn't when I was talking I didn't say what I had um but yeah, for me like it's mostly VTSX which is the VTI that um, um Lauren talked about. Um and then I have um some REITs, the the v n q from vanguard um and then I also have some technology the vgt um i think for me like you know i I'll moving in the future but for now I'm trying to just build up my portfolio and and then and then as I see that you know I'm growing and it's getting uh, bigger and I can start um putting on uh, more like mid cap and um other asset class there so
0: gotcha thank you for thank you for sharing that so I wanted to change directions here a little bit uh, there seems you know there's a lot of different strategies and while we have some some strategies that differ from each other there are significant strategies as far as you know people have completely gotten out of bonds uh, but then you also see kind of within uh, the fire community and some other communities that uh, this this idea that the S and P five hundred or these U S based stock uh, portfolios are not enough for an international allocation. I was curious what everyone's thoughts um, in this spaces was on that particular issue. I'll let whoever feels like answering that answer that.
2: Okay, I'll go ahead. Uh, as far as the Buying the big global like if you buy the biggest US company, you have achieved your international exposure. I I can agree with that to a degree, but and I mean, I see where they're coming from, but I I wouldn't depend on that for my international allocation. I also have two index funds that you had mentioned earlier, Curtis, the developed uh, developed markets and uh, emerging markets. So while, yes, you do have that sort of additional international exposure from the S&P 500. uh, Personally, I'm not comfortable with just that.
1: I read The Simple Path to Wealth, and I do believe that. He's right that you could probably totally be fine if you basically in retirement have, you know, 75% S&P 500. Um, I think when you're getting into, you know, are are those companies international? Yes. I mean, technically they're global. Do you have your international exposure checked? Technically not. Um, But at some point, I think we're splitting hairs a little bit right? Because anybody who's even asking that question is probably doing really well in terms of the, you know, they have these portfolios, they've already got some pretty good exposure into the American markets and they're thinking of where to put more of their money. Um, It's splitting hairs a little bit. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of international stocks. I wouldn't own any except my husband is into the emerging and developed markets and developing markets. So we do have about 10% of our portfolio in international um, and technically, if you if you want to talk about like what's technically correct, what you know conventional wisdom will tell you you should have a, a, about that, if not more, in true international exposure versus global companies
0: that's very that's very interesting. yeah, I Kenny, do you have something to add there?
3: yeah, yeah, i was I was just reading just before the podcast um and then I I I I didn't even know that, but I was like, oh, that's new to me. Uh, and then some researchers saying, you know, the numbers say that like eighty-two percent of um, the the S and P five hundred is the U uh, S companies, and the remaining is like international, uh, which is you know it, it can impact, like it can have an impact. But like, but if you think about it, you just the world is um is one, right? Like Whatever happens, like. In the stock market, like, in Europe, it's going to have some repercussion, like, in America, if you, whether you like it or not. In 2020, the pandemic started in Asia. Like, nobody knew, like, it's going to hit America. Nobody knew it was going to hit, like, the um, uh, Europe. But everybody was affected in some ways. Um, and then, I don't know if you guys, you know, can remember, but, like, America was never, like, in terms of, like, um, stock market, Power like America was never the number one. Um, in the eighties it was Japan. Um, it was not until um the late, I think two thousand, that um America became number one. So you just the bigger risk. The biggest risk is what we don't know. Like you just have to be ready. Like we're talking about diversification here. Um, you you just you just have to be ready. Um, just be exposed internationally if you can. I mean, even if it's not going to be a big portion of your portfolio, you just have to be exposed in some way. Who we, we used to know that? America's still going to be number one in the world like in 10 years. We don't know that. So you just got to be diversified in some sort of ways, um, you know, because when it happens, um, you, you're ready. So yeah, that, that was my take on that.
2: Fully agree with you, Kenny. Uh, that is an absolutely... That's a great point is what it is, because really stocks isn't so much about getting exposure, but it's a hedge against, you know, what happens if America falls off. I mean, as you said, Japan was number one, then they had a crash that they still haven't recovered from like 25 years later. So having those international funds, yeah, you've got exposure through the U.S. companies, but having those international funds is a hedge in case this isn't number one anymore. And that doesn't mean we have to be number 20 or number 100, whatever. We don't have to fall all the way to the bottom. Say you have India or China or any of these other groups, just if they rise up and claim the number one spot, there's going to be a lot of growth there and you want to have some exposure so that you can be a part of that growth.
0: Totally, totally agree. I, I appreciate those perspectives. I'm very heavy international compared to a lot of people um And a lot of that goes back to the fact is not that I, I'm I'm definitely, you know, America first, because I'm an American, I believe in the American economy. And I believe many of these companies are, are going to be running the world, essentially. But as the economy becomes more and more diversified, and everything is more spread out over the whole globe, I feel like in the future, uh, when, when you take into account population trends, you look at the number of children that people in America are having versus the number of children that people in in foreign countries are having. And while they've still got a long way to go economically, you look at population trends, there is a future out there that the global culture could not hinge, might not, possibly might not hinge on the American culture as it does now. And it's American culture that's driving the stock market where it is And that concerns me when the population trends are so much rising so much faster in other places around the world. And so I feel like while there's absolutely some exposure internationally, I feel like it's important that I have other pieces of exposure. Now, this is going to be different for everyone. Everyone's going to have different convictions. And I think, Lauren, your point on this of we're splitting hairs is you're doing great, no matter what if you're even thinking about this question. And I think we can be wrong on this, but but I'm pretty strong in my stance, I guess, of, of thinking that that is not enough in a long-term planning scenario. And you know, everything changes when you're when you're on a decumulation versus an accumulation. And so I haven't even thought that far in advance, but as in my current phase, that's kind of where, uh, where my thinking is on that. Moving on a little bit further down the road, have any of you planned out or thought out how your allocation percentages are going to change in the future? There's, you know, a lot of uh, as you get further on investing life that you want to be more conservative and have have any of you done significant planning or mapping out of what that's going to look like personally and if bonds are ever going to make their way back into that portfolio we'll start with Alex and then go Kenny Lauren Um,
2: I have not really because When you're going to change your portfolio, I mean, it's real easy to say as you get older, yeah, I'm going to shift into safer and safer investments. But the natural response to that is, well, what's going on in the market at the time? So I would love to be able to say, like, well, yeah, when I get to my 50s, when I get to my 60s, whatever, I'm going to start shifting. But I think that kind of long-term planning is ultimately pointless because you can make a plan, but really it's going to depend on – the economy is where your investments are where you are in your life as far as you know what am I in a position where I can take on additional risk for that additional return or you know am I in a lower risk situation am I having some health issues is the economy on the brink of disaster is the economy in a terrible spot and if I shifted my portfolio allocation now you know I'm in trouble so I don't plan out specifically like when I turn 35 I'm gonna switch this to this this allocation of this i don't do that because i think that's more of a look at it where i am now make the change uh review it again in five years so i don't i don't think you can really do long-term planning there without the context of what's going on in your life and the economy
3: um i think for me um yeah i'll be lying to you if i say that I, I have a, a detailed plan on how I'm going to do that. Um, but I know that as I'm getting older, like, I'll be adding some bonds. And that also going to be dependent on, like, my objectives, right? Like, I want to reach certain numbers. Like, I think about numbers, like, like, if I reach my numbers, and then I know that, let's you say, like, a lot of people talk about, like, oh, they want to reach a million, and uh, and then they're fine. I have I have um you know objectives like that where like I say I say to myself if I reach this number um then I start like playing it safe you know um so I think um uh, when I reach certain numbers and set certain objectives then I'll start like thinking about like adding bonds um and 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 in other investments such as. Real estates and trying to you know diversify a little bit more, um, so that I'm not just exposed to the stock market. Uh, but it would be hard for me to tell you exactly now at this moment. Like, oh, when I reach this age, I'm gonna do this or do that. It's it, it's gonna be really, but yeah, I've a I have an idea, but I don't really know how it's gonna play out. It's gonna depend on a lot of things. So,
1: so um, my husband and I are super into real estate and our goal for our real estate portion of our portfolio is where it sits right now which is 50%. We will have to stay very disciplined to keep it at 50% and not keeping it growing because it, it the returns are kind of better and the appreciation is kind of insane in Florida right now compared to the stock market. Um I will also say this in terms of my age I'm 32. My goal is to be done working at 35. So in some ways I am old, right? In some ways I am 60, right? With with as far as my, you know, my retirement horizon goes. So um, my husband who is younger than me will work, work a, a little bit longer than that. Right. He is a partial owner of his engineering firm and he owes it to the business to do that. But um. So I said all that to say, we want to keep it 50% uh, real estate, 40% stocks, you know, 10% for his engineering firm and our crypto. Um, We'll see if we're able to do that. I I have, we're, we're so obsessed with real estate. Anybody, you know, that knows real estate every additional dollar that they have seems to go there. So I would not be surprised, Tom, I could see you laughing. I would not be surprised if we end up with a higher percent, 50% in real estate when it all, when, you know, when the cards fall where they may.
0: If I had to put some money on it, or if we had to put a, do a poll of that, I think uh, we'd have to set a number higher than 50% uh, to get it to get an even allocation on, on that. Cause I think I've seen that exact same thing with, with a lot of people, uh, as well, uh, for, for me personally, I'm going to sound like a hypocrite here. I do not have a plan though. I have kind of some loose things in my head, but I'm in the process of putting together a plan. And part of the reason for that plan isn't because I know what I'm going to do in the future. But the plan is a framework for me to make decisions more level-headed in the future when I get to those road, road marks. And then the second piece of that is that plan for me is going to be something that going to if, God forbid, something bad happened and I am leaving my wife and uh, my child the money or what I've done, that they have some coherent thing that they can give to someone else to help them make decisions. And she's been involved in the decision-making process, but she's in no way in the weeds like I am. And so uh, that's kind of the way I think about it. And, and, you know, I think, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to say, you know, uh, we'll just go with the flow and do whatever we're gonna do. But I, I just am trying to start being more intentional about that as I look further on in the future with um, with me. so what's kind of you know we've talked a lot about kind of our strategies and how we want to go about this and, and and just about the general strategy of asset allocation. but one thing that I've never talked about in the past is there's there's the question of like it, you know you see you know say the bogglehead deal like you mentioned Alex where you have guide guideposts out there but what would be an appropriate time to have a riskier allocation versus having a more conservative one? And let's talk about some of those scenarios. So uh, Lauren, let's let's have you go first of, of what would be an appropriate time to uh, have a riskier asset allocation.
1: So I think that would come down to it's it, you know in inter- your risk basically what we're asking what we're talking about right now is how risk averse you can be right or how risk loving you can be if you know you you just you just had a baby Curtis right that that's life changing that changes so many things right and that changes I think how risky you can be something else you know if you don't if you're if only one spouse is if the two of you were same industry right these are all things that kind of lower your ability to take big risks once you have your foundation set and by that i mean you know you have your emergency fund maybe you're you're maxing your retirement accounts maybe you've got a couple rental properties you're starting to get into crypto whatever i think it's okay to have you know a small portion of your portfolio that you're a little bit riskier with Um, You know, obviously, that's going to depend on, you know, are you very, very risk averse? Or are you very, very risk tolerant? Um, You know, I, someone, my friend, Alan Corey, he wrote the book house fire, he once told me, you know, you can have personal finance lottery tickets, basically, and it's this idea of maybe you buy a duplex, and maybe the numbers look pretty good. But maybe you're buying a lottery ticket when you buy the duplex that they're going to build a new stadium in the area or something like that. And then you kind of hit the lottery, but really it was a good investment anyways, but also there was a ton of upside to it. I think you can do some of those things. I also will say that if if you have a small portion of your portfolio that is set to trading and being more risky and kind of you know doing whatever you want with it, that's especially important. And I think valuable even if it keeps you from taking those risks with the foundational part of your portfolio.
0: Yeah, Lauren, that's really good as is those risks help you avoid making bad decisions with the other part of your portfolio. And I think that's too often the case is people get bored and so they start playing with money that they shouldn't be playing with and that results in them being in a riskier position than they would otherwise be. Um, I think another scenario where you can be in a riskier position is when you've got multiple sources of income. Uh, I specifically see this in, uh, with business owners, right? If they know that they've got a certain amount uh, or if they've got a certain size business that they can make different investment decisions than the general Joe Schmo that's working his nine to five that's just putting money into that 401k. Uh, then I'll, I'll just just say this: of you know, the, it's kind of a, a loose rule that I've held by, but not wanting to be greater than fifty percent in any asset type. And when I say that is I know real estate and stocks, like you can easily go, you know, 60, 40 or 80, 20 or whatever that, but to make sure that like within that real estate that you're not 50% in say one specific property or within the stocks that you're 50% within one specific stock or with when you know you really have those, those really high concentrations. Those are the, pay, those are the points when it gets scary to have that risk because you're betting so much. And I think we mentioned the billionaires in the past of, you know, the billionaires can, can do that sort of thing because they have all this other stuff too. So that's just a few thoughts. Um, Let's, let's have, um, and actually I, I invited coach Clint. He originally was not going to be here. um, But then he told me today, he said he'd be able to hop on. So I invited him to be a speaker. Um, Let's, Maybe, Clint, if you want to take this at the moment, and then we can get the other two. You bet, my friend.
4: Uh, As you are aware, I tend to be, I guess, very risk-on in one category. Mm. So I'm 90% of my assets – sorry, 93% of my assets are real estate, 5% is Bitcoin, and 2% are equities, ETFs, and or – there's only three of them the reason that i do that is i believe i have asymmetrical information relative to the average person and i think it was warren buffett who said the average person should be diversified and if you have information that other people don't have you shouldn't be diversified and so similar to lauren who's been doing this for a long time uh Real estate is my day job. So the decisions that I make personally are driven but by, by what I'm seeing day in day out in my business. So I'm not invested in the business. I'm making the same investment decisions that the owner of the the owners of the business would make and I've seen how they've all grown their net worth by doing that. And not at the company I'm at, but I've worked at a company where I've seen a person uh, or two who are billionaires, and when you see how they've grown their wealth over time, it's actually a reasonably simple formula, and you say, I'm going to attempt to replicate what they did, much smaller scale, and I am willing to be for most of my investment life, fully weighted to that asset class because I see the disproportionate returns that I'm going to generate over time and I'm willing to take on that risk because I understand it from my day job. If if you don't have that same exposure, if you don't have that same view into the world then and you don't have that comfort level, then I don't think that you should be fully invested in one asset class just like you're saying i think a person should be very diversified a person who's getting older in life should be more diversified etc if you're young be taking on more risk and then really look at you have informational advantages over the average person and go deep into those areas that's always been my recommendation have a thesis be convicted and go at it hard i'll pass it back to you buddy
0: I, I appreciate that. That's a great point. But I also add to that is you want to make sure that your advantage is a real advantage. Clint is in a spot to have a real advantage because of what he's done. And so I think it's super interesting, but you want to make sure that you understand your blind spot spots and that you're seeking information out to make sure that you're, that you're not making poor bets on that. Alex, go ahead.
2: I just wanted to throw out there that, uh, Part of that Warren Buffett quote that you mentioned, Clint, is not only just if you have asymmetric information that, you know, it's almost your responsibility to act on it, but part of the Warren Buffett quote is most people should be diversified. However, he also has another quote where it's uh, only those who don't know what they're doing need to be diversified. So if you do know what you're doing in real estate, then there's no need to really be diversified besides being diversified between multiple properties. Uh, personally, I'm not in real estate because I, I'm just not a real estate guy. I just couldn't do it. I'd, I'd be a lim- I'd be a limited partner and I would fund a GP to go out there and do stuff. But, oh, that, that just sounds like a headache I not want to deal with. But Hey, I stay in my lane. I, I deal with my stocks, my publicly traded equities, my REITs. Look, I, it's what I know and it's my lane. I'm sticking with it.
0: Kenny, let's hear your thoughts.
3: Um yeah um I I just yeah I I think I think it just comes down to you know your risk tolerance um like I said earlier um you have to know yourself first you have to know um uh, what you can um hold when you know something were to happen um so you you, you have to know yourself so I think uh, when you're young um it's okay to take some risks. um that also assumes that um you have a, a long term um you know mindset uh, you don't need the money right now um, you can take some risks um, so that you know you can grow your money you increase your portfolio um, but as you're getting older um, you you need, you need to start thinking about um, how to to mitigate and diversify your portfolio um, so yeah basically just you know thinking about risk tolerance and um, and then the best way like I said earlier to to to, to know yourself is just um to be, to be in a market or to be invested in some sort of class. Cause if you just reading book and um, listening to some things and you know, doing it, um, you, you wouldn't know. So you have to put some skin in the game and that's, that's the best way to learn and, and to get some experience.
0: That's great. Go And real quickly, Lauren, I'll let you go. But if has any questions, shoot those questions to Lauren at adulting is easy. Uh, if you would like to get on the mic, just shoot me a DM, just what you want to talk about. And I can, I can do that well. So Lauren, go ahead.
1: Yeah. My question was for Clinton. I think it was before you jumped on. Glad you're here, by the way. Um, I know that you're like 43, but I also know that you want to retire in like five years. So do you look at yourself as someone who's 43 in terms of risk tolerance or someone who's like 60 in terms of risk tolerance?
4: I look at myself as someone who's 20 and what I mean by that I, I think you're aware I have a very high risk tolerance when I'm convicted on something so I, I have no fear when I'm confident in something putting my chips in the middle and over the last week I'm probably down $75,000 I, I was just thinking that in my head as we were having this conversation, whether that's the Peloton shares or Bitcoin over the last week, and that's not really bothering me because this year, I'm likely up one million fifty thousand in real estate. And so it's you know when when things are moving in that direction, I'm very comfortable taking the risks. And I'm also reasonably comfortable taking the risks because we you know, if I if I don't retire, life's not going to, and if things go well, then I'll be able to retire sooner. Or I retire a year or two later. I see we have Land Shark on now. Land Shark, I know you're going through firement right now. That's one of the reasons, you know, I I think seeing what you're doing, seeing what you're going through is I'm getting more comfortable setting a date and saying I want to retire five years from now just to really start building the momentum to do it. That doesn't affect my risk tolerance, though, Lauren, because my goal, even though we're calling it retirement, is to 10x my current net worth and continue making money in other ways that aren't working for someone else. So I plan to be entrepreneurial starting as a 48 year old, which is probably high risk in and of itself. And so I would say my, my investment horizon um, is, is my retirement horizon doesn't affect my risk profile. And at the same time, I don't actually view my investment strategy as risky. I feel based on my past experience that me touching any stocks, including Peloton or Palantir, uh, I, I can't pick stocks and I, I should never be involved in doing. I can pick real estate in the right areas, it cash flows, so even if the market goes down, I'm getting the cash. Um, I do not view that as a risky profile and, and I'd be quite comfortable doubling the amount of real estate that I have and having that facilitate my retirement. So, uh, I hope that helped answer that question. It went a little long on it. Sorry.
1: No, that was perfect. I figured I knew the answer, but I wanted to ask you anyways.
0: Yeah. I feel like you can, you can be comfortable with risk when you're comfortable with your life, right? When you're not just building a life for the future uh, and hating what you have now. Right. Because when, when you're building your life today, and you have a life that you want, while this this idea in the future may be a lot greater, as long as you don't hate what you have now, that risk is tolerable in your mind, and it's not something that you're that you're hinging on. Uh, Landshark, did you have a question or comment based off of? I'm assuming from jumping on.
5: I just wanted to agree and say that uh, Clint is old.
0: we can all we can all agree there and Clint may feel 20 in his mind but I don't think anyone's telling Clint he's 20 right so
5: I I will weigh weigh in if you guys want to hear from the perspective of somebody who also is near Clint's age I'm 42 I'm retiring in about 90 days Um, and I don't have a Uh, Massive real estate portfolio. My uh, asset allocation is basically 80-20 between equities and then uh, my house, which is paid off. We're basically 100% in VTSAX. And what we're doing as we're approaching uh, retirement is, you know, we we don't own any bonds whatsoever. But uh, the cash that's coming in right now, uh, we're sort of kind of amassing a war chest that is going to be... um, you know, the best, which is how Jim Collins tends to describe uh, cash and bonds is you know the ballast against um, you know the, the uncertainties in the market that you're going to see uh, from time to time uh, if you're hundred percent in equities. Uh, so I'm going to slowly start pushing some of that that cash into bonds but I don't anticipate that we're going to have more than you know five to ten percent of our net worth, the foreseeable future in, in bonds. Most of it's going to be in equities. I tend to views, view our principal residence as a bond, um, and which is nice because we're not paying a mortgage, so that that helps with our, where their our cash flow. And you know, we're just going to go uh, early retirement with a pretty aggressive stock portfolio. And if the market takes a dip, um, you know, we're going to have to deal with that. But you know, I've done I run some some calculations and simulations as to you know what we would look like if we hit a, a 20% dip in the market or if uh, average returns only averaged something like 3.5%. And, and I feel pretty confident about it. So, um, you know, a lot of all these, these things, you know, we can overthink this, this whole concept of retirement planning and saving for the future and get into it, analysis by paralysis. Uh, but it's just so important to just continually stay focused and keep your eye on the ball. Uh, plow your money into your strategy, whatever you have decided that strategy to be. You know, for Clint, it's a lot of real estate. For me, it's a lot of VTSAX. For others, it's a pretty diversified split in lots of different funds and different sectors, international versus domestic. But just stay consistent. Don't overthink it, um, and then don't chase returns. Uh, and you know, just continue to to focus on growing your your income and and saving, and, and you're gonna you're gonna be just fine.
0: It's a good word there, Landshark. I was going to ask you real quick, Do how what is your allocation? Because obviously if you're 42 and retiring uh, of retirement type accounts versus taxable accounts, and have you thought of the strategy about how you're
5: going to draw
0: down on those?
5: Uh, so um, I've, I've written about this. If you go to landshark.org, the, the past couple of blog posts I've, uh, I've got my net worth and spending update and that has my set allocation. With my home, uh, our allocation is 78% equities, 19% home, 3% cash. Uh, without our home, it's like 97% equities, 3% cash. I've got no bonds. Uh, most of it is VTSAX. I've got a little bit of a Vanguard growth fund and a little bit of a value fund, a little bit of a REIT fund, but it's mainly VTSAX. I try to stay simple. Uh, in terms of our you know, withdrawal strategy, I've got a pretty comprehensive spreadsheet that I've written about. You can uh, check it out again at the blog. Uh, you can download it. on. It's a Google sheet. You can play around with it. Um, but right now, what we're planning on doing is we're pulling from a taxable account until uh, we deplete that. And right now, the taxable account has about a million bucks in it. So that's going to fund our early retirement. After the taxable account is depleted, we'll dip into our cash and bonds and then our HSA at which point I'm, I'm turning 43 in the near future. So, you know, we've got about 16 years to go until we can tap into our traditional re- uh, retirement accounts and our Roth accounts. Um, so I think that, that based on, you know, assuming 7% returns, 2% inflation, uh, we should be good to go uh, without having to kind of access the retirement accounts early. Uh, so we'll be able to tap into those around age 59 and a half and, basically compounding is going to take care of the rest.
0: That's cool. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Do we have Lauren, do we have any questions to, to address at the moment, or are we good to move on to the next question?
1: Hey guys, I am at adulting is easy. I have not seen any questions yet.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so adulting is easy. I've been saying, Lauren, just make sure you make sure you do that. Let's move on to the next question we kind of wanted to walk through here. And this is, again, getting into the weeds as far as what asset allocations actually look like. And would love to get some thoughts on situations where it would be appropriate or inappropriate to, uh, you know, we talk about real estate versus um, stocks versus crypto and, and whatever other asset classes there are out there. And there's not a lot of talk about, you know, foregoing, say, retirement savings with stocks and choosing to go to um, the real estate. And wanted to get some thoughts from everyone on when are there situations that are appropriate or why would you want to go the rental property or crypto route over traditional retirement savings? And I'll let whoever... Whoever feels most led to answer that, answer that first.
2: Uh, I think I'm going to jump in first just because I think I'm going to have the simplest and easiest answer. Um, Situations when you should go with real estate or crypto or some other thing before or in spite of stocks and bonds, it's whatever you're comfortable with. I mean, obviously, there are people in here who are more comfortable (laughs) with real estate, so they should do 100% real estate or 50% real estate, whatever their comfort level is. There are people here who know a ton about crypto. And so they might know what's, they read the white papers. They know what's behind all these projects. They know, hey, there's potential here. I wanna invest in it. It's, it's a conviction play. How much do you know about it? How much are you going to, how much do you believe in it? And are you willing to risk your retirement? If you are, go for it, Do uh, you do you, but it's a risk and conviction.
1: Thanks, Alex. I'll, I'll go next. What's interesting in the United States, at least, sorry, Clint, I don't know about Canada, um, but you can actually buy real estate in your Roth IRA. Um, someone buying one of our duplexes from us tomorrow um, is, is buying it in her Roth. A mentor of my husband and mine um, just did the same thing. So that's kind of, that's very interesting. It's very intriguing to me. It's also very tempting to me. Um, however i need the discipline <laughs> to have some stocks and so we use our roths uh, we use our roths and our 401k's my husband and i each our 401k's and our roths so we're putting over $50,000 a year into stocks and that is how we do it we only put about 10 or 12 a year into our brokerage accounts the rest really goes into our real estate portfolio so you know i said all that to say we're not going to forego retirement money to put it into real estate. We're all, and, and we are going to purposely use our retirement money for stocks so that we have the discipline to have um, any stocks really at all.
4: That's a good point, Lauren. We, you're right. In Canada, we, we can't buy real estate in our registered accounts. For us, those would be our RRSP or our TFSA for other Canadians on here. I see Stephen Wealthy. I know he's Canadian. The What we can do is we can do mortgage lending in our registered accounts. So I've, I've done some of that, not directly, but through a mortgage investment corporation. And the mortgage investment corporation is is an entity that we run. So I feel very comfortable with it and the loans that are being made, which are to the company that i work for so it's it's uh something i have a lot of insight into so feel very comfortable there although i'll probably cash that out in the spring and curtis uh i've gone very low stocks and mostly crypto in there so some may see that as a high risk play uh it was largely driven by guys like steven um Uh, Oh, hi, Andy, and learning from these guys and understanding what the future looks like there. So I I have a less risky perspective of viewing it over a 10-year horizon. Kenny really nailed it earlier. Know thyself. What's your timeline? What's your risk profile you need the money for? When do you need the money? Those are all questions I would ask myself before determining whether I would put money into real estate or whether I would put money into crypto. And if you're comfortable, you have a long enough horizon, then almost any of these investments aren't risky. They're they're risky when you're making an investment today and you need the money tomorrow. But if you're doing that, you shouldn't be making an you're not investing, you're gambling. Right. So if I expected Bitcoin to hit seventy five thousand by the end of the year and that's the only reason I put money in it at sixty today, that's gambling. But if I think five years from now, it should be a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand. That to me is investing. So have a much longer horizon, understand your risk profile, and then make, make choices accordingly.
0: Yeah, it's true. This is a this is a question that's hard for anyone to answer super specifically, but, but the situation where I could see real estate and where I have seen real estate with the the owners company I worked with is that the tax benefit of real estate in the United States is a huge reason that people go the real estate direction. Uh, it also allows you access to cash flow potentially sooner uh, because you can, you can pay down those mortgages and then you've got free cash flow. And I've seen people that are retired completely off of that cash flow without any uh, retirement monies in the stock market or anything Uh, of that sort. Uh, and then, you know, you're, but, but when you're doing that, you're trading off current liquidity to now, uh, you know, if you were just in a taxable account, uh, with excess funds, uh, or even in a retirement account, uh, you, there's different ways to access that, but sometimes it can be hard to unload your, uh, real estate in a timely manner. And so that's one of the big downsides of that real estate. Kenny, do you want to add something here?
3: Yeah, yeah, I was, I was going to add something. I think um, Lauren mentioned um, the Roth IRA. Um, I think you're talking about the exception where when you're a first home buyer, um, um, the IRS allows you to, like, um, withdraw $10,000, um, and then you won't pay any penalty. I think that's what you're talking about. Um, I mean, it, it's fine to do that, but in my personal opinion, like, I'm a firm believer in compounding, and – you know, you can, you can get a loan for it, a student loan, you can get a, a personal loan, uh, but you can never get a loan for retirement. So I'm a firm believer in just letting your money sit there. If, if you want to use some money or you want your money to work um, for short-term goals like buying a house or rentals, uh, I think you, you better use a brokerage account or a non-retirement account, I should say. Um, to use that instead of, you know, interrupting um, the compounding um, um, in the those retirement accounts. You know, um, th- those those years when you withdraw money, you don't you don't get them back. Um, they are gone forever. So me, for instance, uh, uh, I've listened to Clint and Stephen here, um, and even you, Lauren, when you guys talk about real estate. What I'm trying to do is just to save money in my broker uh, in my non-retirement accounts and 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 when i feel ready um and then i can um, i can purchase a home or rent or later on um i think Lauren in one of in one of the podcasts um or one of the twitter space i think you you talk you know so cuz so many people get think that you need 20% down and i think you mentioned an FHA loan where you can only pay three point five percent if I'm not mistaken. This is also something to think about. Um so yeah this I have, if I were to, to think about that just use a non-retirement account instead of using my retirement account because you don't get those back. So yeah.
1: Yeah Kenny you're right that, that makes that makes total sense. You've got to as you're saving up to invest in real estate you need to put that money somewhere. And there's a legitimate question. Should I put it in a savings account? Should I put it in a high yield savings account? Should I invest it? What should I do with it um, until you save up? And yeah, you can do a 3.5% FHA loan. Um, I'm not sure if you can do it on like a quad, but as far as I know, you can do it on like a single family or a duplex and like live in the other side. Um, and what I was talking about, Kenny, in terms of your Roth IRA is if you leave it as a self-directed Roth IRA, you can buy a you can buy a rental house in it you just you can't when you're like cash flowing from the rental property you can't take that money out as far as i know right um it has to stay in there and then and then buy more real estate within your roth ira and this is like to to a different extent this is what um peter thiel did recently right he had i think it was his paypal stock like before paypal went public in his roth ira and then he went and then he, like, what, took that client and, and like, put Palantir in there. And then, like, so now he has Palantir in his Roth IRA. So he has $5 billion in his Roth IRA. <laughs> yeah,
4: I think he has one of the biggest uh, IRAs that anyone's seen. And it's effectively all the businesses that he's done have been through his uh, IRA account, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. Oh, uh, yeah, Lauren, in Canada, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to put shares of a private company that you own into your RSP. And there were ways people had around it. I know someone who had their development business in their registered account, and that was pretty crazy where they had that. And then they unwound the rules. And if you didn't get the assets out of your account by a specific date, they were going to tax you on a hundred percent of the gain, so everyone spent two to three years with their tax accountants trying to figure out how to unwind all these crazy structures. And uh, what Peter Thiel did, th- he would have been he would have been killed by that r- rule. He would have had to figure out how to get that out of there without paying the tax on it.
1: Well, uh, Peter Thiel has put uh, a target on- who did that now, and I feel like. What Congress is going to do is get rid of my backdoor Roth. When really, <laughs> it's not me they need to be going after. It's it's Peter Thiel. Yeah, when they when they shouldn't be going after the backdoor
0: Roth, they should be going after uh, the ability to invest in these off, um, you know, off exchange uh, investments. Go ahead, Alex.
2: So I actually just did episodes with a guy that does he's a manager of a self-directed IRA company. And I also just did an episode on Peter Thiel and that whole thing. Um, I can tell you with a self IRA, you can put, I mean, if you can call it an investment, you can put in a self-directed IRA. I mean, if it's real estate, do a syndication. If you want to do a business, uh, I think you could even do like jewelry and physical stuff like that. So it's not like you have to pick one. Once you do real estate, uh, that's all you can do. I mean, it's, the same IRA rules apply. And the problem with what Peter Thiel did isn't necessarily that you can put shares of a private company into a self-directed IRA. That isn't uh, really up for debate. You can do that. The problem was is that he put those shares into his IRA at a value at, I think it was like uh, 1,500 shares for a dollar, something like that. So the problem was that he... Uh, now, I'm not, being, I'm not the IRS here, but what he's being accused of essentially is misvaluing his company so that he can get around the contribution limits so that he can put way more shares into the IRA than he probably should have. But I did want to clarify that, yes, you absolutely can put just about any investment into a self-directed IRA, and uh, yeah, including real estate and businesses
0: yeah what what he did is it was after they'd already done rounds of fundraising that their valuation was higher than that uh, round of fundraising. and so it didn't make any sense that that he could do it at that number. but that gets into a whole thats it gets into a whole nother discussion of who's going to be the essentially the referee determining if the valuations of private companies are are valid and so, It'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Hopefully they don't go take a sweeping action that will hurt a lot of people or not intending to hurt um, because that can sometimes be what happens versus a more reasonable response in these situations. So.
4: Yeah, Curtis, what happened up in Canada was they introduced a product called a, a TFSA that that allowed you to put after-tax dollars in And then what was inside it could grow tax-free, and when you took it out, you didn't pay tax on it. And they had a limit, Steve. I want to say it was around $7,500 that you were allowed to put in there. But what people were doing was in year one, they were putting option contracts in, and whichever, whichever ones were out of the money, they were taking out of the account, and they were closing them at the same time. So the one that was in the money stayed inside. And they just kept doing it. So within one year, they were $10 million, as an example, TFSAs. So now they had $10 million that they could pull out of there tax-free. And so (laughs) in probably some people doing that. So I think with Peter...
2: Hey, Clint, we're losing you. You might want to restart that sentence. Doing what? Did it cut off? Yeah, you were kind of coming in and out. The last thing we heard was uh, what Peter Thiel something.
4: Yeah, so what you might see is because those few people were doing something that was seen as totally egregious, they did sweeping changes that caught everybody, including lay people like us when we weren't trying to abuse anything. So Lauren, to your point, you may see them say what he did was so egregious that we have to prevent anyone from doing it. And in putting in the regulations, they may uh, in an unintended way capture too many people. And so it could hurt
0: people like us. Yeah, Thanks for providing that overview there. That's a, it's, it's a very interesting use case and we'll see, We'll see how it continues. It's the consistent or the constant game, I should say, of of chicken with the authorities on what's good and what's not. What's um? Let's see. I mean, and that is it it for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed our discussion about asset allocation. I will be posting a link to each person's Twitter profile that participated in this call. I thank them so much for being a part of this group. It's been fun to kind of learn from each other, to have these conversations. We are going to continue to have them. So be looking for that. As we like to say here on the Delve Into Money podcast, healthy financial decisions are intentional financial decisions. Intentional decisions this week will lead to a healthy financial future. Start today and we'll see you next week.